Michigan Lawsuit Abuse Watch sponsors a Wacky Warning Label Contest. Uh, the contest is meant to reveal how lawsuits and concerns about lawsuits have created a need for common sense warnings on top of products. Here's a few examples from previous winners. Uh, a label on a scooter reads, this product moves when used. Uh, this one on a hairdryer is fairly obvious. Do not use while sleeping. Here's a label on a coffee cup. Avoid pouring on crotch area. Okay. Notice, thank you for noticing this new notice. You noticing it has been noted and the authorities will be notified. And then finally we have a baby stroller with a warning label that reads, remove child before folding. Okay, now these are ridiculous. All of these lawsuits and warning labels about lawsuits and avoiding lawsuits, all these rules of what to do and what not to do, it's crazy, okay? Uh, the book of Leviticus evokes a similar response. The book is crazy, okay? It is filled with extremely detailed commands about sacrifice, offerings, priestly rituals, what kind of food is okay to eat for people, 3,500 years ago, okay? It's crazy. For most Bible readers, the book of Leviticus is as barren and unknown as the dry, trackless wilderness from which it arose. Most readers prefer to skip quickly from the Ten Commandments to Deuteronomy or all the way to Joshua and just skip the Leviticus stuff altogether. Um, this book right here, it sits on my bookshelf. Uh, and this book is called Holiness to the Lord, and it is a guide to the exposition of the book of Leviticus. It's uh, roughly 500 pages, and as I dusted it off uh, the shelf a few weeks ago uh, in preparation for this series, there were lots of highlights and notes within it. Uh, and I had just finished studying Hebrew in seminary when I first got the book. And so there's highlighted stuff and then there's notes on it and then Hebrew transliterations of words. And I was like, yes, I'm not gonna have to reread this book. Uh, my younger self already did the hard work for me. So now I just gotta kind of copy the notes from here into uh, my laptop. And so I'm transferring all my notes uh, from the book and I'm impressed with my younger self, okay? My younger self read and took notes on a 500-page book on the book of Leviticus. So I was proud until I got to page 249, the dietary laws of Israel. I realized they were no more notes, no more underlines, no more words in Hebrew. Uh, my younger self could only make it to Leviticus 11 before I threw in the towel. Now, in the Jewish culture, Leviticus is the first book read by Jewish children. It is often the last book writ read by Christian children, um, probably even Christian adults. See, the Jewish children were taught Leviticus first because they were still in such pure of mind, such purity of mind, and they wanted to introduce them to the need for purity in our worship. So they gave them Leviticus. 
the New Testament references the book of Leviticus over a hundred times. Okay, there is something important within it. And so we're going to be doing a four-week series through this book. And this is a monumental task that we have before us. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible says that all scripture is useful. We are going to put that verse to the test over the next four weeks as we discover what God might have to say to us through the book of Leviticus. Are you ready? The Hebrew name for the book is Waikara, and it means, and he called. Uh, the Hebrews weren't very creative in naming their books. They just used whatever the first sentence was or the first word of the scroll was, and then they just called it that. And in Hebrew, it is, and he called, and so that's what they named the book. Um, the English name Leviticus derives from the Latin translation of, of the Levites. Uh, and though the word Levite is only mentioned twice in Leviticus, it was the Levites who were the priestly tribe of Israel. They were charged with overseeing and running the religious system and the sacrificial system of the people of God. So let's set the stage a bit. What is the context? What's going on uh, around the book of Leviticus? Where and when did it happen? It is sandwiched between the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And these two books kind of give us a timeline of when the book of Leviticus took place and how long it took place. Uh, take a look at the last chapter of Exodus in the first chapter of Numbers, Exodus 40. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. Numbers chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So Exodus ends on the first day of the first month in the second year, and Numbers begins on the first day of the second month in the second year. There's a 30-day window here. Leviticus takes place in 30 days. It's a 30-day intensive. The book of Genesis covers thousands of years. The book of Exodus covers over 400 years. The, the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy cover 40 plus years. And the book of Leviticus covers 30 days. There is something important about this text. Remember, the Israelites have been rescued from Egypt. They are encamped at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain of God and comes down with the Ten Commandments, but he doesn't come with only the Ten Commandments. That's not all he receives. He also receives the Levitical laws, the codes, the instructions for the people. And these 30 days at Mount Sinai are like a marriage ceremony between God and his people. Now, my wife Sarah and I, we dated for five and a half years before we were married. Okay, that's a fairly long dating relationship. And we were friends a long time before that. And so we knew each other pretty well before tying the knots. And after just two weeks of marriage, after two weeks of being together, 24 hours a day, after two weeks of living in the same house with one another, we're both like, who is this person that I'm married to? 25 years of my life, it's just kind of been me. And now suddenly I'm in this covenant relationship with someone else, and we both have just the faintest idea of who the other person actually is. We know we've made the covenant. We have pictures to prove it. But how are we to live together in this covenant? This is what's going on at Mount Sinai. 
Suddenly, Israel is in a covenant with their God. But who is their God? Is he like the Egyptian gods? Is he like the Canaanite gods? The book of Leviticus is a 30-day intensive of what God is like and detailed instructions of how to be in covenant with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. In some ways, Leviticus is a 30-day detox of the gods that they knew before. See, it took God one night to get Israel out of Egypt. And it took God over 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. They had to unlearn so much of what they knew of the gods. In fact, there was just one. And what Leviticus is trying to instill in them is that Yahweh is holy and he is different than the gods of Egypt. And that as his people, they should be holy as well. Be holy for I am holy. More on that word in the weeks to come, holy. But this is the context of Leviticus and this will shape our understanding over the next several weeks. Now let's look at the structure of the book of Leviticus. It is written as a chiasm. A chiasm was a structure of literature that helped in memorization. Okay, remember this was an oral culture. Hardly anybody knew how to read or write. And a chiasm also brings into focus the main point of the book. Okay, here's a short example of a chiasm. Uh, my two children are Dex and Ivy. They are so funny. They are also the best looking kids in the world. They make me laugh every day. Dex and Ivy are the greatest kids. Okay, this is a chiasm and a historically accurate chiasm at that. Notice that the first and the last deal with my two kids, Dex and Ivy. The second and the fourth deal with uh, humor or laughing. And then the main point is the center of the chiasm, and it is that my kids are cuter than yours, okay? Many parts of the Bible, regardless of genre, use a chiastic structure to tell their story. Um, and so this helped in memorization and retelling the story and the narratives, and it helped to bring us focus to the main point, the center of the text. The author of Leviticus does this, and does this extremely well with some material that, how do we say this, sometimes can be less than interesting. Okay, so here's the structure of Leviticus. Uh, we've got the rituals at the first and the last. And then we have the priesthood, chapters 8 through 10 and uh, 21 through 22. Next, we have the purity codes. Uh, 11 through 15 and 18 through 20, and then smack dab in the middle in Leviticus 16 and 17, we have something called the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Uh, there's something important about that day, and more on that next week. This is the chiastic structure of Leviticus. And so what is the big deal? Why all these codes and rituals? Why is it included in the Bible? When I was a kid, we moved from Illinois to California in 1989. I was eight years old. And the first Christmas we had in California, it was pretty unique. We didn't really have a ton of relationships yet. There was no snow. Uh, it was strangely warm outside. And we weren't really involved in a bunch of social things outside of us as a family. And so on that first California Christmas in 1989, I got this toy. Yeah, Science Fair 160, 160 projects that you can do, electronic projects 
all in one set. Did anybody else have this toy growing up? This toy allowed you to make all kinds of different electronic projects by wiring it and connecting it in a different way. You could create a radio, a one-way telephone, a microphone, sound effects. I remember creating like a door alarm, like so that whenever someone tried to open up my door, it would unplug one of uh, the buttons, the wires, and then it would make this beeping sound like it was an alarm. It was a great toy, okay? I had lots of fun in this season of my life. By the time Christmas 1990 came around, the next year, life was a lot different. Uh, but I thought back to my first winter break in California. So I searched my closet and I once again pulled out Science Fair 160. I opened the box and the wires were everywhere, okay? It looked like a plate of spaghetti. There was no order, no design, just wires and buttons. Uh, I remembered that there was an instruction manual and it was the manual that gave me directions on all the things that you can create with it. But alas, it seems as though the instructions were left back in 1989. They didn't make it back into the box and now this toy was ancient. No longer a fun activity to pass time. It's just something that was confusing that I didn't have any idea what it meant. It was the detailed instructions that enabled the fun. It was the rules that brought about the joy. The same is true for the Levitical law in ancient Israel. All of the other gods of the ancient world were fickle. You never knew what they were going to do. You never knew what they were going to say. You never knew what they wanted or demanded of you. There was no rhyme or reason to their madness. No one knew if they were angry or happy. And religion was forever a hopeful attempt to try and appease these unhappy and angry deities. And so with the God of Israel, it's different. In contrast to all the other gods of antiquity, God of Israel lets you know where you stood. He, he lets you know what was needed to be done to restore the relationship. In the book of Leviticus may sound ancient and barbaric, but it was a massive leap forward at the time. In its time, Leviticus helped people know their status with God. Are you and God good? No, I'm asking that literally right now. Are you and God good? Have you ever pondered the answer to that question? Maybe you're pondering it now. And in so doing, you too are struggling with the same questions that the book of Leviticus attempted to answer 3,500 years ago. Where do you stand with the God of the universe? At Mount Sinai, with the formation of Israel's priesthood and rituals, if worshipers came away from a worship service unsure of their standing with God, then something had gone terribly wrong. This is why we here at Prodigal spend so much time telling you that God loves you. We never want you to miss how God feels about you. This is still relevant. You and I are still wrestling with the same stuff the ancient Israelites wrestled with 3,500 years ago. The core of Leviticus was about how to get close to God and how to stay close to God. And not only that, it's not just about navigating your relationships with the divine. It's also about navigating your relationships with each other, with your neighbor. Check out this verse found in the heart of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Leviticus 19.18. Are you surprised to find this lovingly 
beautiful passage in the heart of the law, in the moral code, in the ritual, rituals and sacrifices and priestly instructions of Leviticus, right here, smack dab in the middle of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, that became the mantra of Jesus. It says that that is like the greatest commandment. All of these rituals and sacrifices centered in on love of God and love of neighbor. It's just that the culture was so much earlier than ours and was so much different than ours. They were an ancient, nomadic, wild, violent, tribal people group uh, searching in the wilderness for something bigger than themselves. And God met them where they were. Did you know that over half of the sacrifices in Leviticus are meals? Right, you wronged your neighbor, you realize this, so you take your neighbor and your goat and you go to the tabernacle and the priest walks you through the sacrifice. So you bring your goat and you bring the neighbor that you wronged and you take part of the goat and you burn it because that part belongs to God. And then you take the other part and you sit down and have a meal. Just you, your neighbor, and the priest at a table, which in Eastern culture was a way of saying we are in right relationship because I won't eat with you if I don't have common fellowship with you. And so you came to the tabernacle, separated from God and separated from your neighbor, and then you left the presence of God, reconciled to God and neighbor. When it comes to the study of Leviticus, you look for the principle behind the precept. Now, we are no longer under the law of Leviticus. When you mess up, I don't want you to bring a goat and your neighbor to church so that we can sacrifice it and then have a barbecue, okay? How are we supposed to understand this book in light of Jesus? There are 613 mitzvot in the Old Testament, commands, okay? Many of them found in the book of Leviticus. When Paul or another New Testament writer refers to the law, this is what he's referring to, uh, these 613 commands. They were the code of conduct. They were the rules to obey. You do this, you don't do that. And in the time of Jesus, the law and the letter of the law had become primary. It had become everything. Uh, It was all about the precept, not the principle behind the precept. But something begins anew in Jesus. Look at Romans chapter seven. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions arose by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit up for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, this law, this written code, it's referencing Leviticus. It says, sinful passions aroused by the law. That's what law-based living will lead to. In the same passage, Paul talks about how being told not to covet in the Ten Commandments simply made him want to covet all the more. It happens to us nowadays, right? Law-based living fails to inspire us to be better. When you're standing in an elevator and you notice a sign on the wall that says, wet paint, don't touch, what do you immediately want to do? Well, just let's find out if it's still wet or not. 
uh, there was a daycare. Uh, they, be- they began to levy fines on parents for being late to pick up their children. The share of parents who were late increased. When an 18-month-old toddler sees an adult drop something, they will move to pick it up and hand it back within five seconds. But if you repeat the experiment, but you reward the baby each time, the tendency towards spontaneous kindness decreases. The Boston Fire Department had a long-standing policy of unlimited sick days, and firefighters took the ones they needed with the honor system. When the department imposed a limit of 15 sick days per year, after which firefighters were docked pay, guess what happened the following year? I think you're beginning to see the pattern. The number of firefighters who called in sick for holidays like Christmas increased tenfold. And lastly, this one might hit home, particularly for many of us, speed limit. When a speed limit is posted clearly on a highway, what is your goal? Well, if you're like me or most people, your goal is to figure out how far above the speed limit you can go without actually getting in trouble. All of these examples highlight one thing, do's and don'ts, musts and mustn'ts, with accompanying rewards and punishments, they don't make us better. They don't make us want to behave better. It seems that the way of law, of rule following, diminishes our moral motivation to a contractual arrangement with systems rather than elevate it to a loving attentiveness to people. Jesus shows us that love doesn't work that way, that love is different. When I'm behind the wheel of a car, when I am other-centered instead of self-centered, when I am focused on my children in the car or the safety of other people, my driving mind isn't focused on how fast I could go, but rather how fast I should go. Love gets you thinking in ways laws never can. And the new covenant in Jesus lifts the law, creating space for not law to lead, but for love to lead. So why were we given the law if it just made us worse and aware of how sinful we are? It made us more law-abiding, but less love-abiding. Why do we have the law? Galatians chapter 3, the New Testament speaks into this. Verse 19, it says this, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. But scripture has locked up everything under control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The law was our guardian. Leviticus was our guardian. Other translations use the word tutor or schoolmaster. The Greek word is pedagogos, and it means tutor or schoolmaster or guardian. It was a guide for boys. Among the Greeks and the Romans, uh, to which this was written to, the name applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with 
of the duty of supervising the life and morality of children in the home. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them first arriving at the age of manhood. This is the word that Paul uses to describe Levitical law. The law was our nanny. Uh, so the law was our guardian, our pedagogos, until Christ came. We are no longer under the law because of Jesus. Paul is saying that you can keep the training wheels on or you can really ride with Jesus. No, we're not under the nanny anymore. To put it another way, the law functioned as braces for our legs to help us walk and to keep us upright and straight. Braces on each side of our legs to ensure that we move straight. Okay, there's this movie, okay? Where Forrest is running and he's got these braces and eventually as he runs and as he straightens out, the braces achieved all that they were supposed to do and he ran, run Forrest, run. I was running, okay? We were not meant to remain with braces on our legs. We were made to run, and we run in Jesus. The law was our braces. The law was our nanny. The law was our guardian. The law kept us straight for a season, but in Christ, love leads the way, not law. Leviticus points to it. The, the laws within Leviticus and the people trying to follow these laws really undercut and and deconstruct the law itself to show that the law doesn't work. And it leaves us open to the person who fulfilled the law, Jesus. It all points to Jesus. In this series through Leviticus, we're going to see more and more how it points and leads us to Jesus. God, I pray that as we study this text, this ancient text, as we, in many ways, are re reunited with our ancestors 3,500 years ago as they left Egyptian slavery and wandered in the wilderness to receive your instruction to become the people you've called them to be. God, move in our wilderness today and help us become the people you too have called us to be. And God, help us to leave a life of law and lead a life of love. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Uh, next week, we continue the series and we look at some of the sacrifices in the Day of Atonement and how that points us to Jesus, his sacrificial love for you and for me. We hope you'll join us. Uh, we pray for God's blessing on you, your family, and peace in the Ukraine.